morning, we're going to read together from Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And I'm going to say two comments as we stand and we're going to read these, um, these, these verse. First of all, I want to make a comment about globalization. <clears throat> so what do I mean by that? I'm going to suggest to you that all the nations of the world, the leaders of the world, almost have the same thinking. They're trying to make everybody conform to their way of thinking. And I'll, I'll just say this. When you read the book of Revelation you realize that the serpent, which is Satan, is actually deceiving the nations into believing certain things. And eventually you develop an anti-Semitic thinking, which is anti-Jewish, anti-Israel. And you see there's an anti-Christian spirit in our world. How many notice that? You know, that's what globalization is doing right now. So, yeah, we can rise up and, and become politically active. I think that's important. But above everything, I want you to realize when we read this psalm, you're going to find out what God thinks about this globalization. It's not going to work, ultimately. Okay, number one. Number two, we're going to read a statement that says that the nations are to kiss the sun. That word, kiss the sun, it's, that's another way of expressing they need to worship God. Okay? When you kiss somebody, you're showing affectionate for them. It's a... It's a, 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 a a literary device to express worship. So I'm doing a little interpreting there to help you. So let's read Psalm 2 together. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger, and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And Father, we find tremendous solace in knowing that you are above all the nations of the earth. And even though they conspire together to reject your dominion and sovereign rule, we know that, Lord, they shall not prevail. Lord, we know from your, uh, the historical perspective, and we also know from what you're prophesying and, and showing us of the future, that you, Lord, will make the kingdoms of this world all yours. You will rule over all the nations of the world. And so today, Lord, we are making a decision. We're here kissing you. We're here worshiping you. We're here adoring you. We're here delighting in you, Father. We pray today that you would speak into our lives a word of encouragement, hope, comfort, and strength as we begin this brand new year like a clean slate with all of its opportunities but yet with its challenges as well, that we will see that you are in our days this year, that you are with us, that you are 
the one we can put our confidence and trust in. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn uh, this morning to the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, the last book of the Bible. We're going to look at chapter 1. You know, I, 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 this last Christmas, I did something I have never done before. I preached in the book of Genesis regarding uh, why, why, why the need for Christmas. And my premise was simply that we need Christmas because Christmas is actually a revelation of God's saving grace to our sinfulness. But I want to move on from there because we're living in a in an interesting time in our world. There's a lot of things that are happening, and I know a lot of people feel, uh, you know, a- actually they feel insecure. There, there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of fear and insecurity in people's lives. And then we, we have questions that come into our mind, you know. Uh, Psalm 73, why do good things happen to bad people? And why do bad things happen to good people? You know, that's a question we kind of ask ourselves. And then we, we kind of say to ourselves, you know, um, we, we kind of struggle when we, we experience suffering or sorrow, either through sickness or death or relational breakdown, and we go, God, I'm serving you. Why are you allowing these things into my life? Because suffering is something we all try to avoid, at least, don't we? I mean, we don't really want sorrow and pain and difficulty and suffering to come into our lives, unless we're a little bit mech- uh, what do, you, what do you call it? Masochistic, you know, which means that we're, we hate ourselves. Most people don't hate themselves. They, they want to believe that, you know, good's going to come in 2017, right? We all hope for the best. That's the beauty of a new year. We got to, in a sense in our mind, maybe this is a new time, a new day, new beginnings, something other than what we experienced. Some uh, moving past our, our sorrows, our, our disappointments, our frustrations, our anxieties. So the question arises, so then why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow these things to come into our lives? It's such a good question. And especially when it affects us personally or someone we deeply love. Eugene Peterson says something interesting regarding this. He says, perhaps the greatest mystery in suffering is how it can bring a person into the presence of God in a state of worship full of wonder, love, and praise. Now, you know, I've discovered something about suffering and sorrow. It does one of two things. I believe it's kind of the condition that begins to reveal the nature of where we're really at. You know, when I, when I read the book of Exodus and I see that Pharaoh, the one that Moses is dealing with, the king of Egypt, and he's telling to let the Israelites go. Remember that? And all those plagues that were coming against his nation, the Bible said he just hardened his heart. And so what happens when we're in difficult times, we can either get angry towards God and blame God and, and get hard-hearted and frustrated, or we can allow what's occurring in our lives to do something different than that. All of a sudden, we can begin to do what Eugene Peterson says. It can actually reveal a condition in our soul where we're going, God, I recognize my inabilities and limitations as a human being, and I'm in awe of the fact that you are the one that's in control of all of these things, and I'm putting my trust in you. Suffering does not inevitably lead us to worship. That's the point that I think is so true. But it does far more often than we would expect. In other words, this is one tool that does bring 
an awakening into our lives. And that certainly was true of John, who's writing this beautiful letter, the letter of Revelation. He's now been exiled to a small little island just off of Turkey. It's Patmos. How many have ever been to Patmos? Anybody been there? A few of you. Okay. I've never been there myself. I've been to Turkey, but not to Patmos. Patmos is a little island about eight miles long and four miles wide. And during the first century, it was actually a penal place. They would exile prisoners or outcasts there. So you can imagine, it probably, you didn't probably have the best company there is what I'm getting at. You know, you, you probably, they, you know some Christians were exiled there like John was, but there was a lot of other types of people there that yeah, they probably weren't the best company. And so, you know, John is now struggling. He's suffering. He, he, talks, he, he calls himself a fellow sufferer for the cause of Christ. So he experiences this difficulty in his life. And yet there's something about John that's really powerful. I believe that as a mature Christian, John is not only concerned about himself. Isn't that amazing? How many of you have ever met people that really suffer? And then you, you start finding out that they have a concern beyond themselves. And, they're, and they've developed a deep level of empathy and they're concerned about others. John was like that. I believe John was concerned about the people that he was a spiritual leader over, a spiritual parent over. And he was concerned about the number of churches that were in his care. How were they going to do in his absence? He probably was wondering, how are they doing without me being there as a leader? In their, what's going on in these situations? He, you know, he probably wondered, will I ever get back to them? Will I ever be reunited to them? And he probably wondered, how can I encourage them from where I'm at? You know, you just can't flip the cell phone on and start texting or calling people. You know, just they didn't have coverage in those days. Didn't have a cell phone, right, Pastor? Yeah, it was difficult, is what I'm saying. And so, you know, they did have snail mail. Thank God for snail mail, right? So he's, we're going to find out he does write a few letters, which is great. But he's concerned about them, and we see that. And while he's musing about this time of great persecution and testing, <clears throat> something wonderful begins to happen in his life. As he's in prayer, all of a sudden, something profound happens. You know, John actually knew Jesus as a follower on the earth. But now Jesus appears to him, not as a, you know, as the exalted Christ. He, he appears to him in a form that John has not seen before. Because, you know, when he was walking with Jesus, probably about his same age, probably in their 30s. Now we're going to see Jesus in a way that you may have never seen him before. And, you know, I want to just say this, that when we go through times of suffering... I believe we're going to get to go, know God in a way we've never known him before. We really, it really, that capacity is there for us. And this is what happens to John. And so we're going to look at the first 20 verses. But I want to begin in the middle. I want to look at verse 10. It says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. I was so taken up with this verse. And I've, I've, I've just loved that verse. On the Lord's day. Well, which is the Lord's day? What's he talking about here? Well, it wasn't the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was a day of rest. It was the Saturday. But the Lord's day in the early church was the day that they celebrated in community over the resurrection of Jesus. And that was the first day of the week, which happened to be a Sunday. That's why Christians actually generally worship on a Sunday. Because they're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. They're celebrating this amazing event. And that, that's very fascinating that people that were steeped in Judaism who had, you know, basically worshiped on the Sabbath. Can you imagine changing the day of worship? 
That was pretty dramatic. Something dramatic would have had to have happened for you to make that shift. But it says here, and I love that statement, it says, I was in the Spirit. Now, to be in the Spirit, listen, we're all believers. If you're a believer, you're in the Spirit. But there's a sense sometimes when the Spirit comes in an unusual way in our lives. And we sense the nearness of God's presence. And John sensed that. He sensed the nearness of God's presence. And then it says, And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. Wow, this is amazing. I'm hearing, he's hearing God's audible voice. I've never had that experience. Most of you probably haven't had that experience. I know of a guy who had that experience. He wasn't even a Christian. He was a crusty old sailor on a boat, and God audibly spoke to him, and he got saved. You know, But it probably took something like that to get through to Bill Nelson. You know, Powerful. That was his testimony. It says, <clears throat> he turned around, and what did he see? He saw Jesus. And I think that's, that's an amazing uh, thing he said here. Um, Well, I'm going to read it, this description, verse 12. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, verse 13. Among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. Who describes himself as the Son of Man? Well, Jesus does. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His hair, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. I'm I'm sure when, when, when John was walking with Jesus, this is not what he looked like. So he's now seeing Jesus in a totally different light, right? He's seeing the exalted Jesus. And it says... His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. Now, John did see that once on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he, he has an idea. This is Jesus. Now, I want to make a statement about what happens when we have an encounter with God. When we meet with God, it creates a state of worship. It creates a state of wonder. I mean, let's, let's, let's be honest. When you experience God, you're just going, wow, what's going on? This is amazing. And I'm going to make the statement that worship, when we are worshiping God, it begins to transcend our troubles and it puts everything in life into a proper perspective. How many have ever had this experience? You're going through a very difficult time. Your soul is weighed down. You feel deeply afflicted in soul. You're very discouraged. And all of a sudden, you begin to worship God, and your spirit, your innermost being, begins to lift. How many have had that experience? Is that an amazing thing? That's you know, I've had that. It's very more than once. It's very powerful. Your spirit begins to lift, and you walk away from that experience. Not that anything has changed, but the condition of your soul. All of a sudden, you have a confidence that even though nothing has changed, everything is going to be okay. Everything is well because you have this confidence. God is going to take care of that which you're troubled by, that which you're experiencing. And so in seeing the risen Savior, John receives this disclosure, not only of what's happening to him, he knows what's happening to him, but what's happening in the churches and what God wants to communicate, what Christ wants to communicate to the church. So in this final message that God's revealing to John, the last surviving apostle, 
is the last word before his return. There's no other words after Revelation. This is the closed canon. There's nothing else. If somebody comes to you now and says, well, God's saying this and God's saying that, I'm going, no, no, God's only going to, he's only going to repeat what he's already said. He's not going to add new revelation, okay? We need to hear this because people today want to add new revelation. There is no new revelation. This is the last word, okay? It's very important we understand that. Now, we can have people come and say, God is emphasizing this from the last revelation. That's a little different. Okay. So this final message is to prepare people throughout all of the ages for the return of Christ. And the church lived, the early church especially, lived with this tremendous sense that Jesus was going to return soon. And so they were living with that anticipation. Jesus could come back at any moment. It's a kind of a stirring message to encourage those in difficulty. It's a message of hope and comfort as well as a warning to those who are spiritually different and apathetic. So now we have to remember the church is under great opposition and persecution by our adversary, Satan. You know, I had a very interesting experience yesterday. I was praying in the morning that God would help me to, you know, speak on behalf of those who are oppressed. Okay, you follow this? Then we had breakfast, Patty and I, with a young couple. As I was sharing with them, I began to share some of the things that, you know, we were involved with as missions. And I had an epiphany. I said, I realized, wow, do you know our church, our primary missional thrust from our church is to the persecuted saints and oppressed saints around our world. How many actually are aware of that? That's what we're doing right now. You say, what do you mean? We're in Myanmar. We're helping people who are, they're experiencing, you know, the, the government's trying to genocide this people. We've been involved in that ministry. We're involved in Cuba. We're involved ministering to the Islamic community. We're involved in India. These are all places where great persecution is happening to the church. And I realize the majority of our ministry from our church around our world is primarily to the persecuted and oppressed saints. Is that amazing? That's encouraging. That really blessed me. I thought, okay, God's already answering my prayer. I said, Lord, help us to do this. God says, you're already doing it. Keep doing it, right? Keep doing it because we need to be doing that. That's very important. Then I, you know, we, what, so now we, now we take a look at this great adversarial situation going on in the book of Revelation. And we see this great adversarial situation going on in our current world. We are living in perilous times, folks. Actually, the Bible says that. In the last days, there will be perilous times. But what we need to understand is the last days, biblically speaking, started 2,000 years ago. So we've always been living in perilous times. And a lot of times, we're, not, we're just unaware of it. We've had sometimes a false sense of security in North America. And the church has lived with a false sense of security. And that's why the church has struggled in North America because we don't understand that we're living in perilous times. And we take our faith for granted. And what happens then is we become indifferent and apathetic. That word apathetic is a bad word. We're pathetic, right? No, apathetic means we we don't have any passion. And we're not concerned. We're, We're not passionate about our faith and we're not concerned about the condition of people around us and that's a scary place to be and that's what's happened in North America and because of that the church is suffering in North America in a great way it's the truth we are suffering folks some of you are not convinced of that but you know I'm deeply convinced of it and there needs to be a tremendous concern for the people that are living in our community because they think they're well. We're kind of like the Laodiceans. We think everything's great in, in our world, but we just become lukewarm. 
You know, we're not concerned about what's going on. God's deeply concerned about North America. I can tell you that right now. So what we must always keep in mind is that this message is to deal with the present challenges of life. The book of Revelation is. It's meant to give us hope in life's most difficult and distressing moments of life when our world um, seems to be collapsing around us. But, you know, one of the problems with the book of Revelation is it's clothed in a different literary genre. It's clothed in what they call apocalyptic literature. And you go, well, what in the world is that anyways? Well, let let me say it. It's just coded language. Because, I mean, think of it this way. If, if you're being ruled by a world empire and you're going to say to the people in the church, well, you know the people that are ruling over us, they're all going to get in trouble with God and God's going to destroy them. How many know that's going to sound almost like treason and sedition? And so that's not a good thing to be saying out loud. You're going to have, you know, the authorities down your throat. So these guys are writing in coded language and basically saying, uh, by using this kind of language with figurative and symbolic literature, that's what they're using, they're basically saying, you know, the oppressive power that's ruling over us, God's going to overcome them. Okay? So it's a message, it's kind of a message designed to bring hope to us. Okay? We need to know that. God is revealing to us in this book that he is sovereign and in control. Listen to what uh, John says it this way here in Revelation eleven fifteen. He says, the kingdom of the world, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. I want to just declare to you the good news. You know all the nations in our world, you know the world in which we're living in? Jesus is going to come back and he's going to rule over all these people. He is going to be in charge. How many say, thank God we're going to finally get a leader that actually knows what he's doing? Does anybody say amen to that? I'm happy with that. Yeah. I'm so thankful we're going to get a leader who's going to give us justice. I'm so thankful we're going to get a leader who has compassion. I'm so thankful for that kind of a leader who's going to treat people fairly and he's going to stop with all the oppression that is ex- we're experiencing in our culture. He's going to treat people with dignity and value. I, I, I just like this. The fact that Jesus is going to come back and rule our world. You know, and that's exactly what John is telling us here. Because you know he was living in a time of greater oppression and difficulty than even what we're experiencing today, which is amazing. Now, Leon Morris says it this way. He's a New Testament scholar. He said, The gospel had been preached throughout the Roman province of Asia, as elsewhere, and some had believed and become Christians. They'd been taught that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, excuse me. And now, having died for us, he rose triumphantly to die no more. He went back to heaven, but in due course, he's going to come back. Jesus would destroy the kingdoms of this world and set up God's perfect kingdom. I mean, that's pretty inspiring. And we were all happy about that. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'm happy about that. But as they looked and longed for this promised completion of when God's will would be completely done throughout the whole world. And you know what happened? As far as they could see, nothing was happening. How many know when you don't see God working, it gets discouraging? Anybody say that's true? You know, where are you, God? See, they felt that way. And so the church continued to be a tiny group, doubtless adding a few members from time to time, but not becoming and not looking like a mighty force to take over the Roman Empire. That empire continued on its wicked way, oppression and 
wrong abounded, evil men prospered, idolaters persisted in idol worship, and the cult of the emperor flourished. And because they could not, they would not conform, this tiny band of Christians found themselves the object of suspicion and sometimes outright persecution. A few of them were killed, some were put into prison. And what had become of the message which had induced them to become Christians in the first place? In other words, what was the promise of Christ? Where was the promise of Christ coming? All things were continuing as they were from the foundation of the world. If God was active in the world, it demanded a very strong faith to perceive. In other words, they really believed this was all going to happen quickly and nothing was happening. And, you know, Leon Morris goes on to say this. He says, like most Christians, we have average faith. And when we don't see anything happen for a while, we get discouraged. And that's what was happening. And so they were thinking, have we been mistaken in, in coming to Christ in the first place? Is this all a delusion? Was Christianity a fine religion, you know, for, you know, meeting together and blessing each other? But, I mean, is it really there to deal with the problems of a real world? And must they conclude that it was pretty, a pretty delusion which must be inevitably shattered on the hard rocks of social and political realities? Was the real power in the hands of the emperor and his associates? To a church perplexed by such problems, revelation was written. So we must not think of it as some kind of an intellectual puzzle sent to a relaxed church with time on its hands and an inclination towards solving mysteries. What, what Morrison is basically, Morris is basically saying, listen, you know, we've looked at revelation as a puzzle to be solved. He says, no, this was actually understood by the first century as something to bring comfort in the midst of a very tr- challenging moment. This book is written so that we'll get hope from it. It's not to be, you know, we've got all these far-flung notions about what this book is teaching, you know. And what I'm trying to tell you is it's a simpler understanding of this book, and it will really help us. He goes on to say it was sent to a little persecuted, frustrated church, one which did not know what to make of the situation in which it found itself. John now writes to meet the needs of that church. Is that powerful? In other words, this is a good book for you to read when you're discouraged because this book tells you something. You know, the world seems to be winning, but that's all a delusion. As a matter of fact, Psalm 2, there's a reason why I had you read it. God's, God's laughing at the thinking of human beings that think that they can just deny God's rightful place in their life. God will judge all of humanity. We need to know that. You know, we need to be worshipers of God. So the first chapter opens, there's a prologue, a greeting, a vision, but they all point to the central person of the book of Revelation. You know who the central person is? Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so chapter 1 focuses on who he is and the right response to who he is. And I'm going to declare to you today that the right response to who Jesus Christ is, is to worship him. It's real simple. And so I'm going to take a look here briefly at what we can discover about the essence of worship. And the first thing is simply, you know, the preeminence of worship. In other words, this is what I was designed to do as a human being. This is why we were designed by God. This is why we were created, that we would become worshipers of Almighty God. You know, so the focus in worship is on God, not on us. Isn't that a little off? interesting? So often as Christians, you know, we, we focus in on our styles and forms, and God's not even interested in that part. He doesn't really care about what style or form we have. I'm shocking some people, because we think we have to have the right style or form. God's more concerned about what's going on in our soul. 
and how we're responding to him and how we're living out our lives. We need a bigger understanding of what worship is. Let's begin in verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Notice it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word revelation means the uncovering of something hidden, the making known what we could not find out ourselves. Now, what that really simply means is this, that even though somebody explains to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that you grasp it is actually the gift of God. God unloaded it and made it real to you. And I'm going to bring that out again and again in the sermon. See, if, how many here, you happen to be here Christmas Eve for one of the two services? You just happen to be here. <clears throat> you know, I, I thought I preached probably the simplest sermon I've ever preached. I, I thought I explained it with such simplicity, what it meant to be a born-again person. How many said, Pastor, you did it so simply. Was that simple? And you know what? People missed it. You go, Why? Because they need a revelation. They need the Holy Spirit to open their hearts and minds to the truth. It's just, and I know that. Now, we, I think we still are responsible to try to make it as simple as possible, to explain it to people, but ultimately, it's the work of the Spirit of God that makes Christ real to us. If you're a Christian today, it's because God's Spirit made Christ real to you. That's why you're a Christian. How many say that's neat? God's Spirit opened your heart. You know, it's not because you're brilliant. You know, there's some real smart people out there, but they're actually stupid. They can't get this. But I can't, I can't blame them in some ways because they're not, the, the Spirit of God hasn't activated them. It's just like, you know, until they, you know, they could have, and, I, and some of them are, it's just amazing. They have all the head information. They have all the data. They just need to get plugged in. You know what I mean? They need an experience with God. And I know that. So I pray, Lord, we've given them the data. Plug them in. Right? Turn them on. And they'll get it. That's true. So here's John. And he has this amazing revelation in the midst of all these problems and perplexities, which we have in our world today. All these problems and perplexities. And so from chapter 1, I find that worship actually involves a number of things. And the first thing it involves is hearing. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Now hearing is very interesting. It's hearing to understand and to act upon. And you know, we, we, we live in a visual culture. How many know that's true? But I'm going to explain to you how powerful auditory or hearing is. Do you know how faith comes to people? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, I'm listening to some lectures by a theologian. His name's Philip Carey. And he's explaining the gospel and law, and he's explaining Martin Luther and the Reformation. And he says something very profound. He says, you know, Luther kept understanding something. He kept, he was just locked in on this idea of hearing. Because, you see, until God speaks to us, until we hear, and what he means by hearing is we have a, we hear by faith. We hear what God's promise says, and we actually believe it. And the moment we believe what God is saying, it becomes real to us. That's powerful. How many have been in a service, and you're listening to a sermon, but all of a sudden, God speaks to you? You know what I'm talking about? 
You know, yeah, the person's preaching or pastor's preaching, the person's communicating a sermon, but the Spirit of God now actualizes some words and it becomes reality to you and you respond to that. God's speaking to you. That's what I'm talking about here. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So my job is to give you the Word of God and trust that the Spirit of God is going to activate something in your soul today so that you hear God's voice speaking to you. It's very powerful. And it brings about transformation into our lives. So then it goes on, and then he talks about this word, blessed is the one who reads these words. You know that word blessing is fascinating? Now, this morning, how many of you greeted somebody and say, Happy New Year? Happy New Year. Do you know the word, you know, we could say blessed New Year. Because in the Greek language, that's the same word. We just translate it happy. It means the same thing. Greek, English, happy, blessed, same idea. But you know, the Hebrew word for blessed is the word asher. And some of you know that word because asher is the name of one of the 12 tribes. And Leah called her son Asher because she was happy. She says, now my husband will love me because I'm making him happy by giving him this son. And she called him Asher, which means happy. Now, happy is a very powerful word. This word Asher or blessed or happy, it simply means to be on the right path in the face of false pathways. Now, that's a different concept, isn't it? We we always think of blessed means, oh, I get what I want. Isn't that kind of, we think, I'm happy when I get what I want. No, no, the Bible is teaching you something different, folks. The, the blessed person and the happy person is the one who, who has discovered meaning to life in the midst of chaos. Do you know that the Bible talks about life as basically two pathways? You're either on God's pathway or on the wrong path, you know? And if you're on the right path, that's the blessed path. And you go, well, yeah, but sometimes it's hard on that path. I go, yeah, sometimes it is hard on that path. But it's a lot worse, not a lot worse being off the path. Isn't that true? Yes, it is. A lot harder. You know, the way of the wicked is, the way of the transgressor is hard. You know, people are groping. They're living in deception. They're believing lies. They're, they're living for the wrong purposes in life. And it all leads to, you know, emptiness and no sense of real significance and meaning in life. People come to the end of themselves. You know, you wonder why people do the things they do. Well, they're not on the right path. And you know what I've discovered as a Christian, because I've been a Christian a few years now, that the longer you walk with God, the more illuminated that path becomes. It says, thy word is a light unto my path. You know, actually Proverbs says that, you know, the pathway becomes like the noonday sun. It becomes brighter and brighter. And what I've discovered is I've gotten older and older and I'm walking with Christ, the more illuminated that pathway becomes. I have a deeper understanding. I see things more clearly now. And I'm, and I'm sitting here saying, boy, I really love this pathway. And when I see people wanting to deviate off, I want to grab them and hold on to them and say, don't go off the path because that's where danger is. Isn't that true? How many say, Pastor, I just identify what you're saying. I feel the same way. You know, the path is getting brighter. It's more exciting. I'm getting more excited about God. I'm discovering more things about God because, you know, he's an incomprehensible person. I'm still learning who he is. I'm still in wonder about who he is because we're going to understand that worship is actually, you know, a state of wonder. Uh, so we're in this amazing pathway. I'm going to move on because I, I, know, I know how much time I used up. Okay, so 
Let's go back here. Blessed is a tough word in the Bible. It does not express superficial sentiment, but instead the rugged and tested assurance that it is a good thing to be walking in the pathway of God's will. Don't you love that? I said to somebody the other day, I said, you know, I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you one thing. Do God's will. If you do God's will, whatever that looks like in your life, you'll be a blessed person. You will be so happy you chose that way in your life. But not only is worship about hearing, it's also about seeing. What did John see? He saw Christ in the church. Verse 12, I turned around, I saw this voice. I saw the voice speaking to me. And when he turned, he saw, it says... Seven golden lampstands. Now, we're going to unpack this meaning. Because, you know, if we don't have a, you know, an interpretation of this, we're going to add our own. But at the very end, it says in verse 19, uh, verse 20 says, The mystery of the seven, seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the golden lampstand is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then he writes seven letters to the seven churches. So the lampstands... Don't you think this is neat? You know what the church is described as? We're lights. We're lights in our community. Wow, isn't that awesome? And Jesus is now standing in the lampstand. What does that say? He's in our midst. Jesus is here today. The exalted, risen Jesus is here today. Woo! I love that. And you know what I really like? You're going you're, you're gonna to love this. But you see it says, and the angel... By the way, you know, angel actually just means messenger. So I'm the messenger. I'm the angel. You go, Pastor, really? You see yourself as an angel? <laughs> yeah, I know sometimes I, you know, my halo's a bit t- tilted and all the rest of it. But my point is this. That's what the Bible says about me. I have to believe what the Bible says. But you know where I'm parked? I'm, I'm standing in his hand. I like that place. I love being in the hand of God. Wow, that's powerful stuff. That's the imagery that we're getting from the story here. So he sees Jesus in the church among the lampstand, and he saw that Jesus was speaking through his messengers as they were proclaiming the word of God to the people of God. Wow, that's awesome. But worship not only is seeing this, and you have to see this with the eye of faith. Some of you go, Pastor, I don't see it. I don't see Jesus here, and I don't see you, you know, being, you know, in His hand. That's what I see. I'm sorry. I'm just I'm going along with what God's Word says. And that's that's where I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe that over the natural sight. I'm going to believe what God says. It's way more powerful. Then it says worship involves comprehension. It's about understanding. So John understood what he was seeing. It says in verse 18. He saw, I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. Speaking about Jesus. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades. And then verse 20, we already read. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand. So he's now giving him comprehension. Do you know, I said something in a sermon a while back. I said, true worship is about experience and understanding. We have to experience something and then we need to understand something. John is experiencing something and he's getting the comprehension or the understanding. And finally, worship involves is the response on the part of the worshiper. You and I can't just be, you know, bystanders. No, we got to be participants. I love that part. So it says, when John saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, John had walked with Jesus in the earthly life. When he saw Jesus show up, he didn't fall at his feet as if he were dead. But when he saw the exalted Jesus, 
the resurrected Jesus, he was overwhelmed. He fell at his feet as if he were dead. You know, what is worship? It's the involvement of our total personality. Evelyn Underhill defines worship as the totally adoring response of man to the eternal God self-revealed in time. Or Warren Worsby says it this way, you know, it's the believer's response of all that he is, all that the believer is, mind, emotions, will, and body to all that God is, says, and does. How many get the idea that this is kind of a total thing? That, you know, if you and I are just sitting in a pew right now, but we're not engaged in participating, we're not actually worshiping. We're just here. You're not worshiping until you engage with all that's within you. Does that make sense to you? So, you know, I know you think I'm a little weird here on Sundays, but I've been up for a long time. And by the time I get here at 9 o'clock, I've been up for hours, and I've been praying and preparing my soul. So by the time the worship service starts, I'm worshiping. And I get into it. I put my whole body into it. My mind, my emotions, you know, I move my hands, I dance around. I am like expressing all that is within me because I know who God is. The more you get to know God, the more you go, go, man, God's amazing. I've never met anybody like God. He's the most amazing person I've ever met. You know, what do we mean by worship? Thomas Carlyle said, wonder is the basis of worship. And in our fast-paced microchip world, worship is fast becoming a lost art because worship takes basically two things which we're quickly losing, wonder and time. We're bombarded with all of our technology and inventiveness and we've lost the sense of awe and wonder of life. And with all of the conveniences and gadgets to entertain us, we're actually bored and unimpressed. Actually, nothing shocks us. Nothing stimulates us anymore. We are literally overstimulated, and we've become lethargic and indifferent. What was promised to save time, our modern convenience, has only rearranged time. We're spending more time on less essential things. And that's the great tragedy of us in this culture. We got too much and it's destroying us. And we don't even see how it's doing it. Because it's taking us away from real contemplation and consideration and meditation and focus on Almighty God. We don't do that. And so we, we have a very scrawny view of God. We need to really get it. You know, the more you get to know a person, it's really interesting what happens. I've been married 38 years. And every once in a while I learn something about Patty. Every once in a while she learns something about me. That's interesting. After 38, you're still learning. But can you imagine what it's like to learn about God? Listen, God is incomprehensible. He's inexhaustible. That means there's always something to learn about God. So if you're sitting in this room, you go, I know all this stuff. You know squat. (laughs) You're in the kindergarten school of God. I hate to tell you. You know, I can tell how mature you are by... Your attitude, if your attitude is, wow, I know nothing, you're probably in the best place because you're going, because you see, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. That's the truth. I'm serious. I'm well educated. And I'll tell you this, the more I've gone to school, the more I've studied the Bible, the more I go, I don't know anything. And I'm, I'm getting more excited all the time. The little I do know gets me more excited. And I'm just going, there's so much more I don't know. It should actually make us be in awe of what we don't know. We should be in a greater degree of respect at who God is and how little humanity really knows. I think human beings, for the most part, we're absolutely arrogant. 
There's very little humility in our soul towards Almighty God. We should be so humble before Almighty God. I mean, He has lived forever and ever. You and I only have lived for a little space of time. You know, I keep saying to myself, how come I didn't know that when I was younger? You know, I've read this Bible probably over a hundred times, and I'm still reading stuff, and I'm going, I didn't see that. I didn't know that. I didn't understand that. I'm still learning. There's so much more to know. That's what I'm trying to tell you. We should be in awe of Almighty God. You know, when we study DNA, for example, have you ever studied DNA? That is mind-boggling stuff, guys. You'll be just going, really? Do you know the complexity of the DNA molecules are absolutely mind-boggling? The Bible says we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We should be in awe of Almighty God. Look what he's done. He's created this universe. He's created our human body. We should be stunned. We should be going, wow. I am impressed. You made this? You made all these different creatures? You've made this ecological chain to work? And human beings are walking around, you know, we can't even get the weather right. (laughs) Just pointing these obvious things out, you know? And so, the second thing, and I'm going to close with this, is just the person of worship. Worship is to be centered on God. Listen to what the psalmist says. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. He is the one who made us. We are his. We are his people. We're the sheep of his his pasture. That's not a very flattering last remark. Sheep are stupid. (laughs) I hate to tell us that. But you know, know, and they're very dependent on the shepherd. And let's be humble and say, yeah, we're not that bright. You know, know, how many here, you're over 60? Raise your hands. You're over 60. How many here say, if I only knew what I knew today, I'd probably do a few things differently when I was younger? Anybody say that? Every hand is still up. You see, if I only knew what I know today, I would do things differently. Well, can you imagine if you're 120 years old? You're going to be a lot smarter than if you were 60. How about if you're 180 years old? What about 240 years old? What happens if you're 900 years old? Do you think you'll have learned a few things by 900 years? Methuselah lived 969 years. The Bible says so. I believe it. God finally says, I'm getting tired of you guys living so long. All you guys do is think about the wrong stuff. I'm shortening your lifespan. Well, he's, he's, that's what, exactly what he said. I've read it, you know. But, you know, what is worship all about? I'm going to close with this because I'm running out of time. I, could, I, I said to Patty, I've got so much to say and so little time to say it in. <laughs> Let me move on here. Eugene Peterson says this in the book of Malachi, and I'm going to quote it because it's a modern translation that usually shocks us because he says it in a contemporary language. He goes, God looks, oh, that's, isn't it true that a son honors his father and his workers' masters? So I'm your father. Where's, where's, where's the honor? If I'm your master, where's the respect? God's talking to his people, right? He goes, God of the angel armies is calling you on the carpet. You priests, you despise me. You say, Not so. How do we despise you? By your shoddy, sloppy, defiling worship, you ask. What do you mean defiling? What's defiling about it? When you say the altar of God is not important anymore, worship of God is no longer a priority, that's defiling. And when you offer worthless animals for sacrifices and worship and animals that you try to get rid of that are blind and sick and crippled animals, isn't that defiling? He says, try a trick like that with your banker or your senator. How far do you think you're going to get? What were they doing? Well, they were giving God their leftovers rather than respecting God and giving him their best. 
I ask myself the question, am I giving God my best? Have I given God my best, the best of my time, the best of my energy, the best of my wealth that he's blessed me with? Okay? Do I give him the days of my life, my thoughts, my affections? You see, if you want to know what worship is, that's what it is. And anything less than that is actually, is actually dishonoring God. That's what worship's about. And when we do that and gather together here in the Lord's Day, it's but the collective expression of the fruit of our lives. So what am I saying to us today? I'm saying this simply. Number one, you and I can live in a crazy, upside-down, stupid, moronic world with crazy leaders and have absolute confidence that God's in control. Number one. How many go, I like that. I, I like that. Thank you, Lord. That's why he says, you know, respect your leaders. Don't worry. If they get out of line, I'll, I'll take care of them. Thank you, Lord. I appreciate that so much. Number one. Number two, the question I have to ask myself is, am I giving God everything I am? Am I truly a worshiper? Or am I just living my life and God's at the periphery of it and I'm just bugging God when I need something big to happen for me? Because here's what I'm going to say to you. There's only two pathways. I don't care what you think. There's a broad road that leads to destruction. Even though everybody tells you, you know, we're all on this, we all got different ways to God. Let me tell you, they're all on the same road. It's human beings trying to do their own thing. And then there's God's way. It's narrower, it's very well defined, and it's highly illuminated by his word. But if we're never reading the Bible, what do we expect? We don't know what God's like, and we don't know what God's ways are like. So we have to make a decision. We're facing a brand new year. And here's my challenge to all of us. Do we want to have a better year in 2017 than we did in 2016? Anybody up for that? I got my hand up. I'm, I'm ready for that. That means I may have to sit down and reevaluate what I was doing in 2016. It's just a thought. If I keep doing the same things, I'm going to get the same results. Now, there are some things I did that I think were right and gave me good results in 2016. I want to keep doing that. Well, what were some of those things, Pastor? Well, I got up every morning and I sought God. I thought that was pretty good. That helped me out a lot. You know, and I actually said this to somebody the other day. You know, life is about habits. That's the truth. And all of us in this room are very habitual. It's amazing what we do. We get up, we do the same things every day, usually. Uh, we have a few changes in our routine, but we're pretty routine, right? You've got to sit down and look at what you're doing. And you've got to decide what habits need to be remaining in your life and what habits need to leave. Okay? I turned the TV set on the other day and they said, people watch 10 hours of TV a day. I go, what? Really? Some of you... If you're watching 10 hours worth of TV, you're polluting your brains. How's that? Is that direct? So if you want to have a better mind, because it's pretty, TV's pretty shallow. You haven't figured this out yet. If you want to have a better mind, start reading better books. Start reading the book. Right? Just pointing this out to us. And you're going to have an understanding of who God is, and it's going to begin to shape who you are. You're going you're gonna to actually 
the way to recalibrate your life is not to focus on yourself. I know this is going to sound counterintuitive. The way to recalibrate your life is to focus on God. And when you do that, you're going to start getting focused on things that God's concerned about, and that's going to make you a better person. And when you look back, you're going to go, I like the new me better than the old me. How's that? Is that a good word for you? So you don't have to fear what the world is doing. God's in control of all those crazies. I'm just telling you that. Don't fear that. Don't fear what's going on. The kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdom of our Lord and of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you please come and straighten these guys out? That's my prayer. Number two, uh, Lord, help me to understand who you are better and help me to live the way you want me to. And everything works better, right? Let's stand. I want to be a worshiper. And that means I got to have an encounter with God. How many see that? You're not going to worship God unless you have an encounter with God. I can tell you that right now. And I'm praying for a powerful encounter. So here's my prayer. How many are going to join me? 2017. Okay, God. I want to, I want to experience you at the highest possible level I can handle for 2017. Anybody for that kind of a prayer? We could have revival. We could have revival here. I, I, I want to be praying in 2017. Please turn it off. It's too much. I, my little body can't take it. You know, I want to encounter you. I want to experience you. I want to be changed by you. Because it's hard to change. Right? So let's pray. We need to experience you, Lord. We need to be in a state of wonder. We need to give you all that we are because that's what true worship is. It's not form or style. It's more the condition of our soul. And I pray, Lord, that when we gather, our gathering together will only just be the outflow and the expression of a life well lived through the week. I pray, Lord, that we will worship on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And when we gather on the Lord's day, we will be in the spirit and we will hear the voice of the Lord Jesus himself. And we will have an encounter with you, the true and the living God that will sustain and carry us day by day, week by week and month by month. I pray today, Father, that you will do such a profound work of grace in our soul. That you will use us ordinary people in 2017 in extraordinary ways. That we will be this amazing lampstand. And lampstands shed light. And may this congregation shine so bright in 2017 that our community will see the light and the love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. People will come to faith in you. And Lord, we will grow in our comprehension and our understanding of who you are because we've experienced you. I pray, Lord, that we will not give you the leftovers of our lives. 
but we will give you the best of our lives, the best of our time and our energy and our resources, and we will learn to trust you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and be able to rejoice regardless of what comes our way because you are going to give us strength and courage and comfort and hope You are going to sustain us in our trials. You are going to grow us, oh Lord. You are going to help us become the men and women you're calling us to become. Because we're going to be more like you. When this year comes to an end, we'll be able to say, it was a good year. It was a blessed year because, Lord, we were on your path. And it was so significant and so meaningful. And Lord, I can honestly testify, last year for me was one of the most blessed years. It had great challenges and difficulties, but Lord, I also saw some of the greatest victories. And I pray that this year would even be greater.